Hi, welcome to Master Your Mind with me, Marissa Peer, teaching you the secrets to harness the powerful potential of your mind so you can have a fulfilled and happy and extraordinary life. Send your questions or your problems that you'd love me to solve to podcast at marissapeer.com. So today I'm talking to someone I've been a fan of for a long time. I met him on the speaking circuit and I immediately fell in love with what he did. And the person I'm a fan of is David Hamilton. He's written many books, many best-selling books. In fact, he's written 10 books, including The Little Book of Kindness, How Your Mind Can Heal Your Body, I Heart Me, the Amazon bestseller, The Five Side Effects of Kindness, and his latest book. And I just love this title so much, Why Woo Woo Works. That's out on the 21st of September. So I'm really excited to discuss with David the mind-body connection. The first thing I want to ask you is why you left the pharmaceutical industry and went into writing books. So I'd love to know about that. Welcome, by the way. I've wanted to interview oh. such a long time. Thank you, so Marissa. Thank you. And, and thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's a real pleasure because I've been a fan of yours also. So it, it's really great that we're having this little uh, dialogue. Yeah. Uh, well, do you know what actually catalyzed, if I really was to track it back, what really catalyzed me leaving was that I, I had an interest in the mind-body connection before I began working in the industry. You see, when I was a, about 11 years, when I was a child, actually, my mum developed a postpartum depression. And it was after my youngest sister was born. So I have three sisters and my youngest sister was born in 1976. And my mom, my mom took postpartum depression. Now, it wasn't understood very well at that time. And, you know, one of the one of the, the, the doctors actually said to my mom, you need to just give yourself a shake. You know, asking a woman with postpartum depression mm. to, to give herself That's a shake. Is like yeah. asking someone with a broken hip to, to run it off. And, and so my, my mom didn't really get the, the treatment that, that really worked for her. But one day I was 11 years old and I was in the school library and I just started high school. And as, as woo-woo as this might sound, a book fell off the shelf. It was called The Magic Power of Your Mind by a gentleman called Walter Germain. And I had this sense that will help my mom. So I just put it in my bag. Now, I didn't know you're actually supposed to join a library. I just we still have the book so uh, anyway do you know it didn't cure depression but you know what it did is it taught my mum tools and strategies like meditation and affirmations that helped her to navigate a course through difficult times so when I was growing up as a teenager my mum and I would often talk about the power of the mind and and all, all the different things that your visualization meditation affirmations so when I found myself several years later as an R&D scientist in the pharmaceutical industry and mostly working in cardiovascular, a little bit in cancer, but mostly cardiovascular. And my, my friends and colleagues are saying, look how many people improved on the drug, brilliant. And I'm saying, look how many people improved on the placebo. Isn't that amazing? And I was just captivated by the, the numbers, but also the fact that there must be something going on that, that causes, there must be some explanation for why believing something can have a real physical effect. So I spent a lot of my spare time when I worked in the, as a scientist, some of my spare time, I spent researching the mind-body connection and understanding, you know, how does believing that this little tablet here, that's a placebo, how does that actually fiddle around with my my brain chemistry, my, my physiology. And I, 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 I learned so much that I decided, you know what, this is my passion. I, I don't want to work at a lab bench anymore. There's enough people, enough skilled researchers doing that. I don't need to be there. There's far more that I could do with my passion, which is education. So that's pretty much how I, I left, why I left the industry. And I know a lot of us know about the placebo effect, but can I ask you to tell people about the nocebo effect? Because I find people don't really understand what there is. We know, if you could just do it, because you're so much smarter than me, tell us <laughs> placebo sure and nocebo. Well, this is your background. So yeah. placebo versus nocebo. Tell us the difference. Yeah, well, you know, placebo comes from the Latin uh, that means I shall please. You know, so I shall, there'll be a pleasing result from this. Whereas nocebo derives from the Latin, I shall harm. In other words, there, there will be a harmful result from that. So some people call it the evil twin. And what it really means is 
if the placebo effect that I take this and I expect to get better, then something positive will happen. Then the nocebo is when I expect something bad to go wrong and I expect to have more pain. And the way it kind of works is like, if you use the pain example, when I, let's say I was taking a, a wee white tablet that I thought was a painkiller, but it was really a placebo, then the pain would go away more mm. than likely. But the reason it goes away is because my belief has caused the brain to produce its own painkillers. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and it's the, the real actual painkillers that, that I produce, my own version. They're, they're called endogenous opiates. They're the brain's natural versions of, of morphine and heroin. But if I then take something that I think is going to make me worse, or if I, I have a, an idea that I think this isn't going to help me, for example, then the pain might intensify. And the reason why is because I've now produced something else that's blocked the production of the natural morphine and heroin. So in a sense, because they're always providing some pain relief, I'm actually neutralizing them and intensifying the pain. So what you get is an opposite effect. Placebo goes up the way, nocebo goes down the way in terms of that would be an improvement and that would be a getting worse kind of thing. Yeah, and I love the fact that so many people on placebos get better. It, you know, it's, it's that thing about every thought we think has a physical reaction and indeed an emotional response. But I'd love to know from you, how can our audience do more to help themselves? to help themselves move from illness to wellness? What, what, what are some very simple but powerful things that they can do? Well, do you know, Marissa, one of the most powerful things we can do is actually using your, your language there is to take a, a, a mental representation of illness and turn that into a mental representation of wellness. And what I mean by a mental representation is just the way that I might represent something mentally. So for example, if I had say some arthritis in my knee, then I might represent that in whichever way I want. Maybe I, I would have a picture of it because I know what that looks like. Or maybe I would just represent that as, you know, sand on between two things, like sand between two sandwiches, for example, and you wouldn't want to mm -hmm. eat a sandwich of sand. And so I would turn that into a mental representation of wellness. So for me, it would either be if you knew medicine, you might want to Clean it, clean it out and imagine putting some oil or fatty substance so that the joint now uh, easily moves around with no pain. Or I might take that sandwich and get rid of all the sand and put like butter or olive oil or mm. something fatty in there so that the sandwiches, the, the two bits of bread slide over. And the reason I'm using a medical and a non-medical example is because it doesn't actually matter. All that matters is that you take a mental representation of illness and you turn that into a mental representation of wellness. And the basis of that is because in many ways, the brain doesn't really make that much of a distinction between whether something's actually happening or, or whether it's actually happening or whether you're imagining it happening. And so imagination itself can, in some cases, tilt the, the movement of stuff in the body towards that what you're, that what you're imagining happening. Yeah, I, I think that's so profoundly true that you know when people say oh, how does that work we all know that if we think an embarrassing thought we blush mm -hmm. if we think an emotional thought we our eyes fill up with tears mm. if we think about food our stomach starts to rumble so every day we see very practical examples of wow i'm thinking a thought and my body's making that thought real. And I do believe that if we could all be taught every thought you think is a blueprint that your mind and body have to make real. It's not that like it has a choice. Mm. The mind has to work on the thoughts you think, which you are free to change. So can you tell me more about the types of visualization that you recommend to people if they want to heal from something or, or just improve in a certain area? People get very confused, but I can't visualize. I go, listen, if you can't visualize, you would never worry a day in your life. When you worry about your kids not coming home on time or something bad, I mean, that, that's visualization. But mm. can you tell us more about how we can use visualization yeah. to heal? something or indeed to just improve an area of our life yeah yeah so so to get around the the fact that some people say they can't visualize i i sometimes swap the word for imagine because yeah. just like you said people can imagine something bad happening so you are visualizing but so exactly. maybe we can swap visualization for imagine hmm. I, I do that Great sometimes idea. yeah and, and so 
it, the key strategy is, is take a mental representation of illness and turn it into wellness, but to do it repetitively. And mm. I say repetitively because uh, research into the idea that the brain can't distinguish real from imaginary began uh, with a breakthrough study at Harvard University led by a professor called Alvaro Pascal Leon, where he asked volunteers to play five notes on a piano for two hours on five consecutive days. And he measured the changes in the brain. Uh, and it was a significant amount of change. But he got another group of people, instead of playing the notes with their fingers, to close their eyes, put their hands flat, and imagine moving their finger. Imagine playing the notes. So they had no movement of the fingers. Just It's called kinesthetic imagery. You just imagine mm -hmm. what it would feel like if you really were playing the notes. So they did the imagine bit for the same two hours over five days. And they also had their brain scanned every day. And amazingly, it was exactly the same as those who did the physical movements. It had substantially changed any key region of the brain. And if you put the brain scans side by side, you couldn't tell the difference in the scans between those who had actually played the notes and those who had imagined playing the notes. So visualization or imagination in this way works by, through the repetition, begins to sculpt, if you will, brain circuitry. And brain circuitry, the more you imagine illness turning into wellness, the more you see that wellness, the more brain circuitry begins to sculpt around that that kind of idea. So you can apply it to just about anything. Even, you know, I've given an example of arthritis. You could even apply it to mental illness. So I, I the idea is to take a mental representation again. So I, I met a gentleman years ago who suffered terrible depression. And he had what he just, he called treatment-resistant depression. And, and that's when the treatment is no longer working. And, and he had actually also at one point, he had made a suicide attempt that had been so bad. And one of his friends had suggested visualization to him. And he thought, well, you know, I, I've only heard the visualization through for physical things. So how do I do this for depression? And he came up with a novel idea. He, he, he'd actually read one of my books, How Your Mind Can Heal Your Body. And it was because I'd mentioned making a mental representation, he thought, well, I can do that for depression. So he, he said, I felt broken. And that was how he described how he felt at the time. And it turned out that he, his marriage had broken up and he took it really badly. And he started drinking too much alcohol and such that he was going into work the next day. Now, he was a university lecturer and he was going into work the next day smelling of alcohol. After a few warnings, he was eventually made redundant. He was eventually given the sack. Uh, and told he can't work anymore. And he lost his house. He ended up homeless in a little town north of Manchester in the UK. And so he said, I felt broken. So he said, could I make a mental representation of brokenness? So he, he remembered a mirror that him and his wife, his former wife, had in their hall. And he really loved it. And he thought, I'm going to imagine my brokenness as if that mirror is broken. So he imagined the mirror broken. It was lying on the ground in hundreds and hundreds of shards. And he said, so I have to, to turn illness into wellness. In other words, brokenness into wholeness. So in his imagination, he took a brush and pan and he swept up all the shards and he put them in a cauldron in his imagination. Then he, he imagined lighting a fire under the cauldron and all the, all the shards of broken mirror began to melt into liquid silver. And then he just imagined the empty mold and he put, poured all the liquid mirror back into it again and blew on it to cool it down. And then he held it up and he imagined seeing himself whole again. So in other words, he'd taken brokenness and turned it into to wholeness. And he did it every single day because he said it only took a minute in his mind to visualize it every day. But within a couple of months, he said that he, he was a brand new, he said, I was a brand new person. He'd literally made himself uh, whole again. Yeah, because I think we don't actually realize our own power. When people say things, if I look at a cake, I gain a pound, that's imagining that happening, not understanding that the strongest force in the mind is it has to make that imagination real. And so you just find the opposite. I look at a cake, I gain a pound. My metabolic rate is so amazing. Whatever I eat, it burns off. I have a memory like a sieve becomes 
I've got a phenomenal dependable memory. And if we could just all understand the simple thing, look at the words you're using, you are powerful mm. beyond belief because you're making those words your reality. Your words shape your reality. If you change mm. your words, it changes your entire reality. You know, I had um, a couple of instances of having, I guess you could call it an extreme illness. And you always hear, well, the percentage, you know, you've only got a 25% of survivors. Well, that's okay. I'm in the 25%. I'm, I'm in that group then. I'm mm -hmm. going into the 25%. I remember working with a football player. He was in the youth charity team. They said, you've got a 2% chance of going into the main team. I said, well, just believe you're in that 2%. Say, so I'm in that 2%. But what I find is really useful is songs. Like, you know, as you said, Whole Again, I was thinking of that song by I can't Atomic Kitten. Atomic I Kitten, yeah. Whole Again. And I find I have many clients sing songs about healing mm. and well-being and make up the lyrics. My body is a well-being machine. And when you sing those songs, whatever they are, it actually really is a powerful way of imagining. But I wanted to ask you about something else. It's a word that we hear a lot, neuroplasticity, mm. how your thoughts create neural pathways. Could you tell us more about that? Because you're so good at making this complicated, actually simple. Yeah, well, well neuro, thank you very much. Uh, well, neuro, neuroplasticity is just the word that we use uh, to describe uh, how the brain might grow like a muscle in a particular area. I mean, to use an example, if I was to do some mindfulness, so for people who've never did mindfulness, you basically breathe, which I hope most people are doing, uh, and, and you, you just notice that you're breathing. And if I notice that I'm breathing, I give my attention to the fact that I'm breathing. I'm being mindful that I'm breathing. I actually take this part of the brain to the gym, the part just above my eyes, it's called the prefrontal cortex. And when I say take it to the gym, if I went to the gym and let's say I worked my bicep, then if I did lots of reps with my bicep, then two things would happen. The muscle would become firmer and then the muscle would become larger. And what's made it firmer and larger is an increase in muscle fibers. A wee bit like if you had a tree, the tree was growing more branches and the branches were getting thicker and, and multi much more branches growing. So something very similar happens in the brain when you work out a region of the brain. And if I meditate, if I notice that I'm breathing, then this is the part I'm working out, I'm taking to the gym. So rather than neuroscientists calling this muscle growth, they've got their own fancy word for it, neuroplasticity. But the idea is similar in the sense that you're laying down new fibers. And what's happening here is imagine you've got one tree and one tree. So you've got two trees and now the trees want to talk to each other. So they they stretch their branches over, but in so doing, they, they generate lots and lots of new branches. So what you're doing is you're creating lot like set of five fingers, 10 fingers, 20 fingers, 30 fingers, and they're creating more branches and these branches reach across and they, and they form these connections. And it's very akin to growing extra muscle. So what happens is the area of the brain gets firmer and larger. In other, in other words, ultimately it moves from like, dial-up internet to fiber optic broadband internet you end up with more fibers there and also the area itself begins to occupy more space so the neuroplasticity is really the brain's version of growing muscle by working it out yeah. but but the working out is really the thinking about it so when yes. you think about your muscles getting bigger i mean i've heard that a lot that you can go to the gym and work out or you can visualize working out there's a great story about the Olympic rifle team in America where they went into three groups. One practiced every day, one visualized and one visualized and practiced. And everyone thought, well, the third group's going to be the best, but it was the middle group, the one who did nothing but visualizing, or as we say, imagining who were the best. So I'd love to ask you about hypnotherapy. Now I'm a massive mm. fan. Everything I have in my life is down to hypnosis. So I know that you used it. You said that you used it a long time ago to improve a long jump. And I work with lots of athletes who use hypnosis to improve their performance. So can you share that story about you using simply a hypnotherapy tape to improve the long jump? Yeah, yeah. So I, I, was, an, I was an amateur athlete. And, and I say amateur, meaning like in the lower ends of, of ability. 
Uh, and I used to compete for the, my own university. I, I went to a university in Scotland called Strathclyde University. And so I competed for them. I was a relatively low level. And I was, I'd taken a job in Cheshire in England uh, with a, one of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies. And I, I decided to try out for a, a club called Sale Harriers in Manchester. Now, they're one of the biggest and oldest and most famous athletics clubs in the UK. And I, I went along, I was doing a wee bit of drills and running and stuff, and, and one of the top uh, coaches came over and said, look, what are you doing? And stuff. I said, I wanted, you know, I wanted to be a sprinter, actually. I wanted to, to sprint. And he said, well, what to do? I'll give you a little session and just practice that for six weeks. Uh, and I wasn't initially improving that much, until I got this tape, it was a hypnotherapy tape by Paul McKenna, and it was called Ultimate Athlete. And I listened to it every single day. And at the time, I'd also decided that I want to start practicing long jump because a lot of sprinters become jumpers as well. So anyway, over the next couple of months, I listened to that tape probably about five, six times a week. Every, every Most nights, uh, just sitting or lying down on the couch, and I just put the, listened to it and... My, my long jump improved dramatically. I mean, literally dramatically. When Sale Harriers, after uh, doing this training regime for six weeks, the coach had never come back to me. He was a 100-meter sprint coach, and I knew that I wasn't fast enough because Sale Harriers had several athletes in the Olympic Games, you know, at the you know, at previous Olympic Games. And so I was over at the long jump pit, and the head of the club came over to me and said, how far have you just jumped? And I said, absolutely no idea so he paced it out and he said do you want a long jump for us and I thought brilliant yeah because I had done a few long jumps for my university like just six months earlier so having done all this hypnotherapy I didn't really know if it was if it helped because I'd never really measured a long jump yet so I, I was asked to compete for sale harriers and my first jump I actually won the competition by more than half a meter I couldn't believe it. I'd added almost a meter onto my own prior personal best. And the only difference really had been hypnosis, so hypnotherapy and doing a bit more training on my own. But it was mostly the hypnotherapy, I would say, that contributed to the massive, not just a little bit, but a massive increase in my long jump. In fact, I, I, even come, I even entered the Scottish Athletics Championships and got to the final a few months later, and, the, and it was being used as an Olympic qualifying uh, competition for the 1996 Atlanta Olympics, and I got to the final. <laughs> and that was me from a low level. And the main difference was, was the hypnotherapy that I'd been doing. Yeah, because the hypnotherapy makes you believe that you can do it. You know, we are what we believe. Our beliefs profoundly affect us, and yet our beliefs are ours to change. And I've hypnotized many, many Olympic athletes, and the Olympic bodies will tell you straight away, listen, it won't be long before the only athletes who get to the Olympics are those who visualize. Because it, if you've got a sporting prowess and you visualize, you, you do so much better. I met someone a little while ago who said, you know, I've been listening to one of your audiences and I live on a hill and I run down. When I run up, I go, oh, I hate this bit. This is the hard bit. My legs, aching. I began to say, I love this bit. I feel like I've got mercury attached to my heels. And I was sprinting back up. And the only difference was I changed my thinking from I hate it to mm. I love it, which is why Marines will sing when they're running. Because if you sing, you say to your mind, oh, I love this. And so often we think, oh, this is hard and I hate this. And your mind picks up, you don't want to do this. You want to go home and watch TV. Let me get you out of it. And so just changing your language about any sporting event, even going to the gym and going, I love it, love it, love it, will profoundly affect you. So, yeah, I, I love hypnosis. I, I've hypnotized many people who've said, you know, it, it was amazing. And if you read something like the inner game of tennis, well, the inner game of golf, you hear again that, that belief, even with something like darts, the belief that you can see where it's going to go will make it go there. So I'm so glad that you mm. simply used the hypnotherapy tape and found it powerfully improved your sporting pros because that says to everyone, if you use a hypnotherapy audio or even 
use your own hypnotic language to believe that you can pass an exam, get a promotion, find love, or indeed run faster, jump higher, jump longer. Guess what? You can. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wasn't quite expecting such a big improvement in, in my, my long jump. I mean, it was a massive, I mean, it was almost uh, 23 feet that I had jumped uh, and my previous best was about 19 feet. So I'm talking, you know, the upper towards and getting close to seven metres now. I, I wasn't a professional, I was just an amateur, uh, but it was still a fair uh, distance uh, for me, having never really trained at the level that you need to train to be jumping that far. And the main difference, as I said, from before to after was the, the, the hypnotherapy that I was doing. And it was having an effect on my language to the point now that even today, I, 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 I tweak my language. Like I, I found just the other day there, I, I kept going upstairs and forgetting something. You know, you, know, you, go, you want to do something and I thought, oh, I need to go up the stairs, get that thing. And then I come down and goes, oh, and I've also forgot. I, I need a pen. And I go back up and I come down, oh, oh, and I forgot the paper. And, and we've got a really steep flight of stairs in our house. Mm. And if the first couple of times I went up, I'm thinking, my, oh, you know, it's an effort. And then the next time I did it, I thought, you know what? This is great for my muscles. I'm loving doing this. I'm thinking this is exercise. I'm so pleased that this is the now the fourth time I've forgotten something. This is extra. What I'm actually doing, I was bounding up the stairs instead of yeah. two minutes earlier feeling tired going up the stairs again. Now I was like, this is great. I'm getting some exercise. And it was just that little thought that changed. Yeah, when my little girl was little, of course, with all children, you know, they go to school and they forget. And I'd always tell her, you have an amazing brain. It remembers. And she'd get to the gate and come back. And I never said, what have you forgotten? I go, what have you remembered? She said, I've remembered my lunch. I've remembered my swimming kit. And I said, you have an amazing memory. And she began to not go, oh, every day I forget. But every day I remember. I get out of the door and I remember. So something as simple as changing what have you forgotten to what have you remembered makes mm. people think, I got a great memory rather than a terrible memory. Yeah. And I love the fact that we can all be responsible for just looking at our language yeah. and, and changing the negative words. I'm an idiot. I've forgotten. Even changing the word nervous to excited. Mm. changes everything in your body because it doesn't know and it certainly doesn't care which you use except when you say I'm excited you get a whole different experience so I'd like to talk about another word which I, I know you're a huge advocate for which is kindness can you tell me why you wrote a book about kindness and why you know because I know you know that it's not just beneficial for society but for each individual that practices it the benefits we get from practicing kindness. You know what? What catalyzed the the book? You know, I've always had a, a firm belief that a small group of people with compassion and kindness in their hearts can change the world, and that that's my uh, word take on the Margaret Mead famous thing. You know, I, I just played on those kind of words, but that's what I've always believed apply applied to kindness, and and then. Quite a few years ago, I was I was doing some research because I was playing around with an idea. I had a couple of ideas for a book at the time, and I was just going through some research, and I came across some research uh, in a, a Tibetan Buddhist uh, meditative technique called Metta, uh, and which in the West we we call that loving kindness, where you basically you cultivate a feeling of ki love, kindness, and compassion towards yourself and towards others. And in this meditation, they were measuring the impact it was having on the cardiovascular system, and they were measuring a reduction in inflammation. Now, the way they were measuring the reduction in inflammation was uh, measuring reduction in a marker that I was very familiar with from my time in the pharmaceutical industry. What I mean by a marker is, you know, if you were measuring your height, you might take a marker and, and mark against the wall. So in the body, you have biological markers that measure the height of something or the amount of something. So how much of it tells you how much you've got going on of that thing in the body. So this was a, it was a marker of inflammation. It was telling you how much inflammation systemically was in, in the body. 
And, and so I was very familiar with using that marker because I had used it myself working as an R&D scientist in the pharmaceutical industry. And what astonished me is from just a six-week daily practice of saying things like thinking of people and saying, may you be happy and well and safe and may you feel at ease repetitively. May you be happy and well and safe and may you feel at ease. Sometimes even visualizing that smile and appearance on the person's face or even see them surrounded by light, but feel that feeling. And amazingly, they got substantial drops in that marker, that level of inflammation. And it was quite comparable to what you would get from a very decent uh, pharmaceutical drug. And I thought, that's incredible. You know, here we have all they've done. It isn't the meditation itself. It's the feeling of kindness and compassion. So I decided to start researching kindness and compassion and find all the evidence. And there was absolutely zillions of it. There was so much of it out there that no one knew about it. So I ended up writing, well, actually three full books on uh, the science of how kindness impacts. And it has a tremendous impact. You know, for example, kindness improves mental health. And it's not just, I mean, research shows that people, if they're asked to do a certain number of acts of kindness, compared with people just being normal selves, those who do the acts of kindness always end up happier than they were beforehand. But, but what happens is the feelings in induced by kindness, actually have physiological effects in the brain. One thing that happens is the, the whole frontal part of the brain gets worked out, but with a slight bias to the left-hand side and a wee bit in the middle. And these are regions associated with happiness and joy. And what that means is when you practice thinking kindly of people, it becomes easier to access happiness and joy. But the other thing that happens is a turning down in the activity of a region of the brain that plays a central role in stress, worry, fear, and anxiety. And, and kindness hormones actually turn it down. And when I say turn it down, is just like if you're in a room and the light is too bright, you might go to a dimmer switch and turn it down. So in the brain, kindness hormones, the, these, physio, these uh, uh, chemicals that get produced because of how kindness feel, they literally turn down the activity of the stress, worry, fear, anxiety portion of the brain. So long-term, frequent kindness has protective effects for our mental health. But the effects actually go into the cardiovascular system because the main kindness hormone itself also causes a change in the blood vessels. It, release, it causes a release in tension in the walls of the blood vessels. So they essentially soften and they widen. And when that happens, the heart doesn't have to push quite as hard to get blood and oxygen through. So the heart eases off some of its pressure and that for us translates into a reduction in blood pressure. So the main kindness hormone that gets produced because of how kindness feels to you is actually called cardioprotective, meaning it protects the cardiovascular system. And I know we immediately think, okay, I, I gotta be nice to people. I gotta pay a compliment to my neighbor, be nice to the checkout girl in the store, be, be nice to the waiter who's got my order wrong. But I think the other important thing is be kind to yourself, you know? So could you talk about some of the benefits we get from self-kindness, which, which I'm a huge fan of. I call it being your own best friend, being your own cheerleader, but I'd love to get your take on being kind to yourself. Yeah, so, so being kind to yourself, this can be, we could do this by changing how we think about ourselves or even changing some of the language we use, uh, how we speak to ourselves about ourselves, changing some of that language. Or it could even be in practicing some self-care, which you're, you're looking at individual things that you might do for yourself as, a, as a, an act of self-care or, or, or self-kindness. But amazingly, what, what happens is we begin to fiddle around with our brain chemistry, and we begin to produce beneficial substances in the brain that actually make us feel happier and, and more content. But, but similarly, some research showed that self-kindness can have an anti-inflammatory effect. You know, they were measuring this marker of inflammation, and part of the practice, a significant part of the practice was self-kindness or self-compassion, which is that aspect of kindness where you, instead of being critical of yourself and your language and how you think about yourself, you become gentle and kind 
in how you think about yourself, how you speak to yourself. And I, I think of it like uh, when we move from, say, being self-critical to self-kind and self-compassionate, it's almost that we are reducing a psychological inflammation. You know, you could think of self-criticism as psychologically inflamed, you know, just like yeah. if you cut yourself and it's red and swollen and inflamed, you know, psychologically, that's what self-criticism is like. And so as we develop self-compassion through the practice of self-kindness, then it's like we reduce psychological inflammation. And what's amazing is actual inflammation systemically in the body also begins to reduce uh, as well. So it's really quite quite phenomenal, the power of it. Yeah, I mean, I love that because it's a choice, isn't it? You can wake up and go, oh, look at the state of me. Or you can wake up and go, hey, you're an amazing person. You've got a good heart. And who cares if you've got cellulite and your hair's a mess or you didn't get your suit cleaned or your shirt isn't properly ironed. It's so much easier to be nice. And, you know, although you have a choice of being critical or, or kind, what people don't understand is your body doesn't have a choice. If you choose to be kind, that's great. And if you choose to be negative, it's your choice, except that your body has no choice but to act on the negative words you use. Mm -hmm. I think if we could look into our bodies and see what negative words about ourselves do, we would decide, I, I'm not going to do that because the price you pay mm. is just too high. Now, my dad was an amazing one. He always said, it's not important to be right. It's important to be kind. And I always thought that was true. You don't want to, when someone says something, you go, oh, you know, that was wrong or that's incorrect. You just think, oh, it doesn't matter. Who cares? So I'd love to ask you, well, I've got a lot, so many questions to ask you, but the next one is, in the moments that you've needed to master your own mind or your own mindset, what helped you and who helped you? Uh, you know, my mum my helped me a lot uh, one day. There was a time a number of years ago, while I actually worked in the pharmaceutical industry, uh, when I, I was struggling with depression. And I didn't tell anyone, you know, I, I, to be honest, Marissa, I felt ashamed. Now, this was back in the late 1990s, and I'd been working in the pharmaceutical industry for about three or four years. And I just felt ashamed. I just felt low and, well, d depressed. And I, I just couldn't tell anyone. But I began to withdraw from my friends. Even when I was out in company, I just felt I had nothing to say. And I, I was finding it difficult to engage in conversation. And I just had this background lowness that was getting heavier and heavier. And I used to go into work and we had this thing called trust time where you, the company just trusted you to do your job but they, and you could come and go when you want. But they preferred that you stayed until about four o'clock. So but as soon as it came to four o'clock, I was gone. And I would get in the car, I'd come home I'd park outside the house. I would close the door, lie on the floor, my, my carpet and cry. And I did that most days for probably four or five months. And as I say, I didn't tell anyone. I felt ashamed. And then my mum kept phoning me up and she just kind of knew that something wasn't right and that I wasn't telling her. And she kept saying, you know, I know that there's something wrong and you're not telling me. And she was going through all these things that it could possibly be. And one night I just started crying and I said, I'm just feeling depressed. And my mum, having had years of postpartum de depression that wasn't understood, my mum said, right, you're coming home now. And it, pretty much uh, I got in the car and I drove 245 miles <laughs> from Cheshire, the centre of about the middle of England. I drove all the way back to central Scotland and I, I, I phoned work uh, and told them that I wasn't coming in for a week or so. And I stayed with my mum and dad. And my recovery began when I had the courage to open up mm. and share my vulnerability with my mum and also my fear and, and what was going on in my life. And that was an amazing relief. And my mum was so good uh, because she'd been through depression she shared with me some of the things that she did. And it was about, it was also about, you know, practicing mindfulness, meditation, but it was also about affirmations. And, you know, I can, mom used to go, I can do it. Mind over matter. It's a thought that counts and pump her arm and stuff. And I think that, and also uh, helping me to realize what mattered most for me. 
in the world. And I real that was the beginning of the that, that was in some ways the catalyst of me leaving the pharmaceutical industry, which I left actually about a year later. I actually eventually left because during that time, I, I began to realize that part of the depression, this is what my mom and I were talking about at the time, was me feeling that my life was going in a direction that wasn't for me. Uh, and I, I was sort of losing my, my purpose. And even though I never imagined, I never believed that I could actually be writing books and I failed my English at school, you know, you wouldn't think that I would be writing books and speaking in front of people would terrify the life out of me. But somehow I knew in my heart that I'm supposed to write and speak in the eye, even though I was afraid and didn't think I could, the idea of doing that just lit me up. And I knew that that's what I'm supposed to do. So the, the part of the depression was this kind of discord between my life was going there and I knew in my heart it needed to be going there. So my mom helped me to, to, to almost tease out of me what actually needed to be happening. And neither of us even then imagined that I would leave my job a year later. It didn't even mm -hmm. seem possible for me, but it did start that pathway of me finding a sense of purpose and finding what is it that lights me up truly. And, and that, so my mom helped me, but that is what actually led me to uh, having more energy and everything was just finding what lights me up. Well, go do that now. I find that because I've, I've found with all of my own clients and patients that one of the major causes of depression is failing to follow your heart's desire. Say, so, well, you know, I'm here and it pays well and I'm too scared to leave, but failing to follow your heart's desire is a major cause of depression. And it's interesting, you can look at it, you know, that depression was my friend. It was trying to talk to me. It was saying, you're in the wrong place. This doesn't make your heart sing. This is not fulfilling you. And so you can almost reframe the depression as a terrible thing to a good thing because it made you leave a job that didn't have your name on it and find something that did. So I love the fact because I, I found exactly the same thing. I find with all my clients, there are three things that causes depression. The number one is harsh, hurtful, critical words that they say about themselves and to themselves on a regular basis. The opposite of kindness, it's super criticism, followed by not following their hearts as are followed by huge disconnection. So I love the fact that you cured the depression without medication, without believing you had some odd, um, didn't have the right chemicals in your brain. You understood it wasn't a chemical thing. It was more of a soul thing and that you didn't feel fulfilled. But how do you think, how could you help other people get themselves out of a rut when they say, but my mind isn't on board, I, I need to get out of this rut, but my mind isn't helping me, it's actually hurting me. What advice could you give people who feel they're in a rut? Yeah, so, so what can be very helpful is getting into a habit of meditation, but it can be a particular meditation style because not all meditation styles appeal to everyone but the, the real key is the habit and I really mean that it, you know many people give up practicing a form of meditation after just a couple of days because they feel they can't stay in it so there are different styles different ways of meditating for example if you want to be better at concentrating then a mindfulness-based strategy might actually be the best for someone who has difficulty concentrating because that improves the thickness of the concentrating part of the brain. And so you could practice mindful of your breath or even mindful of the sounds, sights and sounds in your environment. You could even walk while you meditate uh, or you could just be mindful of the par parts of the body. But instead, if you wanted to improve your happiness, then you might practice a kindfulness type of yeah. meditation and kindfulness is the word that I use for any meditation where the focus isn't entirely on the breath but it's on thinking kindness about other people and sometimes yourself yeah so we could use the Tibetan Buddhist strategy the loving kindness may I which is called metta may I be happy well safe and um, feel at ease for myself and other people or you can just think about people that you, in your life and think about all the reasons why you care about them and why you appreciate their presence in your life. Or you could even think of acts of kindness that you've participated in as the giver, receiver, or even the witness to it. So if you wanted to improve your happiness, then a kindfulness practice might benefit. But instead, let's say you wanted to reduce 
your mental chatter. Then you might go for a, 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 a mantra-based technique, you know, because research shows that mantra-based techniques tend to turn down the regions of the brain associated with mental chatter. So your mind does become more quiet if you practice that. So you, mantras like Om or Om Mani Padme Hum, that kind of thing, or even transcendental uh, meditation. So you can pick a style that has your name on it, to use, use your language, Marissa, a style that better has your name on it because some people don't know that there's different ways of practice. So they try it for, for a couple of days and oh, I can't meditate and stuff like that. So try a different style. It might be that you need a style that is a bit more active or a bit more passive. So there are different styles. But I found in the first instance, rather than, uh, you know, there's lots of other tools that we can use, you know, self-esteem tools and, and visualization tools, uh, tools. But oftentimes in the first instance, it's good if we can just get a little bit more change in our mind itself and, and meditation can offer a great way of doing that, but it does need that consistency because really a, a good way to think about it as we did earlier is if I wanted to become stronger physically, then I might work out my muscles, but I've got to keep doing it. If I want to be able to run 10K, then it does no good to jog around the block once and, and that's me. You've got to practice, you've got to run you know, a couple of miles every every other day and keep practicing it, the muscles become leaner and stronger and faster and more flexible. So you've got to apply the same uh, intensity and the same, you know, repetition, frequency. You've got to apply that to your mindset as well. And so if you take that idea that I've got to train for this, then we can, you can train your mind through meditation in the first instance, you know, so mindfulness to help you to concentrate kindfulness to help you feel happier or mantra-based techniques to calm some of the mental chatter. But if you practice them, then you develop, you get the fruits of those seeds, if you will. Then you can start embarking on maybe some more techniques that might solve specific problems in your life. So do you have some stories? I'd love a story or two of people who've used kindness and seen their life change, change powerfully or dramatically or rapidly. I'd love you to share one, or maybe two. Yeah, well, I, I, I know I, I wouldn't want to sh to use their name. I, I, I suppose um, I, I don't know how they would feel about me airing that publicly, but but I, I certainly know uh, one person who uh, a, a little while ago was was struggling in their life and, and started uh, upping the kindness to other people, just making an effort to. You know, even using one of the examples you said earlier, to even help using your words to brighten the day of someone, mm. of a shop assistant. The simple little things that you don't realize yeah. I can do. I can go in here and I recognize maybe that assistant that day was looked a bit down or a bit just kind of, you know, we don't always feel great all the time. Maybe I, I could give her a little lift kind of thing. And he, he was starting to do these things. He, he starts to go that extra half mile in the family. And, and just do lots and lots of things. And he went from a place of feeling a kind of background of depression to actually feeling really good and also recognizing that this is something that I feel powerful about. I, this is something that I've been able to do. In his life, the only thing he'd ever been given was medication because he didn't know that there was some other things they could do. Uh, and to say he also changed some of his diet and started eating a little bit better as well. But but the main thing that did it for him was just that sense of empowerment that I am feeling happy and happier. And it's because of something that I am doing. And so that sense of empowerment. But secondly, realizing that kindness is one of the easiest things in the world, but it feels so beautiful inside. And so the, it was like a double thing he was getting that beautiful feeling and and as well as the sense of empowerment that I can do something here yeah because he's boosting he's boosting someone else's self-esteem but he's also boosting his own Absolutely. give when you're giving like you kindness or praise and you say something it doesn't matter what it is like you're doing a great job or I sometimes say to someone in the store I love your nails or gosh you've got beautiful eyes or thank you so much you did a really great job here and just a little thing, and it, it boosts their self-esteem. But of course, it's actually boosting mine because when you give, you receive. When you when you say to someone something horrible, 
actually the same thing happens. You kind of receive it back. So when you diminish someone, you have a bad day and you become a bit snippy, you find that you, you, you take it back, you absorb it. So when yeah. you give kindness, you benefit, you are forgiving. And when you give meanness, it, it kind of, you think, oh, I, I, I wish I hadn't been so rude to that motorist or that person. Yeah. And I guess also kindness is seeing that when someone is mean, you think they're probably having a really bad day. Why does this person just cut in front of you in the traffic? Maybe they've got a sick kid. Maybe they've got a difficult boss. It's being kind yeah. about the people's actions. So You know, see I think- when I drive, I absolutely love going out in the car because I use it as an example to be an opportunity to be kind to as many right. motorists yeah. and pedestrians. I mean, literally, someone pulls in front of me, Absolutely fine. On you go. It's totally fine. Or, or I could let someone out. I go on you. On you go. Flash the lights is up. Yeah. And I have so many exchanges of smiling and and polite exchanges. Pedestrians, you know, on you go. On you go. It's fine like that. And I get this immediate feedback. So yeah. driving the car for me is I'm plugging myself into the happy centers of the universe by just using it as an opportunity to be nice to as many people as I can. Yes, because it's a win-win. Because you're doing it for them. And for you, or you're doing you and for them. So I I could ask you questions all day, but I need to ask you this. And what are your three top tips for mastering your own mind? What would you say that you've done that we could all do to master our mind? Well, the the things that I would say have been most effective for for me, uh, the first one is visualization on a physical level of illness to wellness. So Mm -hmm. taking a mental representation of illness and turning it into a mental representation of wellness. Now, uh, where I apply that to myself is I, I, I play competitive tennis. And so uh, I, I, have, I have picked up a number of niggly injuries over the last few years, uh, every single one of which I believe I've improved the rate of recovery by using this illness, illness to wellness, this mental representation of illness, turning into a mental representation of wellness. But as I said, you can apply it to a number of things, physically and even mentally. As well, so that's my, my first one. The second one uh, for me uh, is be kind as often as you can. Just be kind. We are genetically wired to be kind. This is this is why there are. Uh, this is why the body, the mind, the brain, and the body benefit from kindness because we are actually biologically, genetically wired for kindness. It's something that's evolved in us as a way that's actually protected uh, and protected our species over the years by cooperating and helping each other out. In fact, you know, the gene for the kindness hormone is one of the oldest in the human genome. It's about 500 million uh, years old. So we absolutely have a natural tendency to be kind. Yes, we have other tendencies as well. But the point I'm making is when we tap into that, we unleash ancient biological processes that impact the brain and the body. And that's why kindness is actually good for you. So that's my second thing. The third thing I would say is is practice meditation frequently, but find your own vibe, find your style that, to use your word again, that has your name on it. Find the style that works best for you. Don't just give up when you try the first little bit, because most people have never tried meditation, just focus on the breath. Now that's only one of a number, a large number of different meditation styles and techniques. So play around, find a one that really has your name on it that works best for you. You know, it's funny because as you're talking, I'm remembering one of the reasons I married my husband is because he is kind. And I hadn't known him very long. We went to Morocco for our first holiday. And I found this tiny little kitten under a car and it was so tiny. And I said, I have to go back and feed that kitten. So we went back to the store and we bought some tuna fish and went back and we couldn't find it. And he looked under all these cars till he found it and gave it the tuna fish. Oh. And he didn't really do it because he, he did it for me. And all, every time we travel, he knows what I'm like. I'm always collecting food from the buffet and feeding cats. And I was staying in Mykonos one day. And he's, I said, oh, when you go to breakfast, bring back some food for the cats. He said, I'm not doing that. That's theft. I said, it's not theft because I don't eat breakfast. Just bring some. No, I'm not going to do it. Then I heard him saying later, now, don't fight. There's enough for everybody because I have so many cats outside my room. And he really tolerates my need to feed all these stray animals, cats and dogs oh. all over the world. And it's not his thing, but he does it for me. But, you know, marrying a kind person Kindness is so overlooked as the thing that makes a relationship work because 
when you're sick, when you're troubled and you have a partner who's kind. I was saying to my daughter, you're so lucky because her fiance is also immensely kind. And we are so, have they got a six pack? Have they got money? Do they dress right? But kindness is such an important quality to have in a marriage, in a relationship, mm. because that person will put their needs back and be kind to you. And, and I, I'm so grateful I've got a kind husband. It's mm. amazing. It makes such a difference to my life. And it makes me be kind because he's such a kind person. Yeah. Do you know, Marissa, there was a, a 10,000 person survey that quizzed 10,000 people across 33 countries and asked them a number of questions, but uh, asked them, uh, what would you most like to see in a long-term partner? And you know what came number one in both males and females in all stretched over six continents, in all six continents? Someone who's kind. Isn't that lovely? Yeah. yeah. And it's funny because when I say that to audiences, sometimes they go, oh, sure, that can't possibly be true. Because what we do is we turn it around and we think, yeah. what does someone want from me? Yeah. You know, but in actual fact, that isn't the, isn't the question. The question is, what would you like from someone else? And sure. so when you actually look at it that way, what most people actually want in a long-term partner is someone who's kind. It doesn't matter yeah. about the hair and the six-pack and the money, because these things, these things are transient. But kindness yeah, is, yeah, kindness is your nature. Yeah, it's, 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 it's always going to be there. It's, it's that always, stability. It's always, I mean, my husband is so tolerant of me. I take in all these stray animals all the time and, he pay, we pay all the bills and he's really, the other day I couldn't find one of my pets and he was out there looking with his torch. And I know that he doesn't love them like I do, but he's very kind. Um, you're very kind. It's good to be kind. So I want to finish by asking you about your book. I love the title, Why We Will Works. Can you tell us a bit about this book? Yeah. And well, why We Will Works? Yeah, well, I, the, what I've done in the book, Why We Will Works, is I've taken a number of subjects that, people tend to be sceptical about, and I would say unfairly sceptical. Uh, and the thing is that people are sceptical about these subjects, not because they're experts in them and know if something is true or not, but because they're not experts and they actually just don't know the available science or, or philosophy or thought on it. So I took a number of subjects like that and I provided the scientific basis of them. I, I, where studies existed, I provided the scientific research for things like, you know, I touched from the lower end of woo-woo, like meditation, visualization, even the explaining how and why the placebo effect works the way it does. But even going into the link between personality styles, coping styles and, and, and disease states in the context of trauma. And then I went into how nature heals, you know, for example, hospital patients recover faster if their window offers them a view of nature rather yeah. than a brick wall. And then I talked about biofield therapies, things like Reiki, for example, and listed lots of scientific studies that have been done categorically show that it's very, very effective for reducing pain, anxiety, symptoms of depression, these kind of things. And also have a, my, one of my biggest chapters actually on crystals. And it's one of the reasons why the subtitle of the book is the surprising signs behind meditation, Reiki, crystals, and other alternative practices, because there is a substantial amount of science that explains how and why certain types of crystals can be like aids to meditation, for example, or can impact us in, in subtly different ways. Uh, and, and then I dive in, into consciousness. I talk about how perception shapes reality, uh, how, uh, you know, what is the nature of consciousness? Is it inside your head or is it out there kind of thing? And it just feels like it's inside the head. I talked about prayer, distant healing. I even have a chapter on the law of attraction. And so I, I pulled all the science of these things together into a really coherent whole. Uh, and I'm really pleased with it. That it's, it's very strong, I, I think, the, the science. I'm curious to see what skeptics think of it as well. You know, some of the chapters. Yeah, that would be, we, we always get skeptics in our, in our profession, but yeah. we get more believers than that. So how can we find you? Where can we find you? List your websites and how we can hear more of your amazing um, information. Yeah, well, my website is drdavidhamilton.com. And you can get from there, you, I've got at least 150 blogs on my website that I've written over the years. Uh, that you can access all my social media channels, my monthly live personal development club, they're all on, on my website. Uh, and I, I post regular videos 
on social media where I'm doing little snippets of talks and, and also on my YouTube channel. So, but most things you can get to through my website. Okay. Well, thank you. I could talk to you all day. You're so fascinating. And thank I you. love that. And I'm, I'm going to remember that line that Roald Dahl said about, do you remember it about kindness? He said, when you're kind, your face is beautiful. Thank you for listening to Master Your Mind with Marissa. I'm Marissa Peer, founder and creator of Rapid Transformational Therapy, known as RTT. RTT is my life's work and passion combined into a unique and proven program for therapists to create powerful change with their clients. I feel blessed every day to see the transformations it brings and the ripple effect it's creating in the therapy world. To find out more, visit rtt.com.